0: Let's look in Luke chapter 2 tonight. I have misprinted on your uh, handout tonight. Luke 21 through 40. Uh, Luke doesn't have 40 chapters, so I apologize for that. It's Luke 2, verses 21 through 40 tonight. I told Eddie I get ahead of myself when I start using my brain and my hands at the same time. So, good news of great joy. You know, Probably at some point, some of y'all are in that generation where maybe Christmas wasn't as big as it is now. You were glad to get an orange and some chocolates or something like that. And uh, others of you may have known the anticipation of Christmas, what it was to be waiting for your heart's desire. I had plenty of Christmases where I was just really hoping for one thing on that day, you know. And uh, some of you might can relate to that. We, we get a chance to see the story of a man tonight who was waiting and anticipating and longing for the coming Savior. And I think we see in him an incredible picture of what God's call is for each of us as well. So I'd like to just look at this passage largely about Simeon, uh, a man who we meet here in just a moment, and then uh, we'll get a chance to walk through this together. Why don't we say a word of prayer tonight as we begin. Father, thank You that though You knew the cost better than anybody else did, that Uh, you gave your son to us for our sake. Uh, You gave him which was eternal uh, to save and rescue us who are mortal so that we who are mortal uh, may someday be eternal with you. And so we just praise you, Father. We thank you uh, for that. And so tonight, Lord, will you in our minds and hearts exalt the Lord Jesus. Uh, Will you lift him up and may he grow more precious in our sight. May we learn from Simeon, May we learn from Anna, Uh, may we learn from Mary and Joseph, and most of all, Lord, may we learn from the words in which you give us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Now just for a bit of housekeeping, before we dive in here tonight, we obviously had our march to the manger uh, this evening, and so that is uh, in order to, to look towards the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, to take part in the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Our in-gathering is taking place this coming Sunday, and so whether you uh, give online and pick up one of our cards in service, or whether you bring your gift in in a check or in a, in a cash form, uh, we'll have that together as an act of worship together to, uh, to give. We'll talk more about that on Sunday but to take part in that way and... and so just a reminder about that. also want to remind you that this is our last Wednesday night in December to meet together. And so next uh, Wednesday night, the 21st, uh, we will not meet. And then the Wednesday after that, the 28th, we also won't meet that night. So we'll pick back up with the Gospel of Luke in January. Uh, Lord willing, getting a chance to see that one story that we find out about as Jesus as, a, as not an infant and not an adult, that uh, him. His parents for three days trying to find the Lord Jesus. What that must have been like uh, for them. We'll we'll pick back up, Lord willing. Uh, that night in January when we restart then. So just a reminder about that. Our Christmas Eve service on Christmas Eve night is going to be at 5 p.m. So you'll see information about that as well. So just be aware. And also on Christmas Day, we will have just one combined service at 11 o'clock. There will not be life groups that day. There will also not be any form of preschool or child care. So everybody's together as a family, all our good and bad, just there together in one room. And so when I say bad, I'm thinking mostly of my own kids bouncing around, but we're going to try to do the best we can. But that's a sweet time to get a chance to be together as a family. And it's also a well-deserved break for all those who are serving uh, in those areas. And so we're looking forward to that. New Year's Day is going to be just like the Sunday after Thanksgiving. We will not have an 830 service, but we will have everything else. So full spectrum of child and preschool care, as well as life groups are going to take place on New Year's Day, January 1st. So housekeeping out of the way, let's dive into the passage tonight. Can We start with verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when Jesus was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. And she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee. To their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So little Lord Jesus, seven, eight days old, eight days old. Uh, we see here in verse 21, the, the process was set forth that on eight days, that is when uh, the circumcision of infant boys would take place. And then here we actually see the next verse, verse 22, guides us into a separate incident and that is 40 days out from the birth. And so the purification takes place here with Simeon, that is 40 days out from the time of the birth of, uh, of the Lord Jesus. If you want to uh, just sort of get an idea on a map here, what's interesting is is most believe that the roads, the highways that you would see in Bethlehem and Jerusalem today are actually on top of where the ancient paths were. So, more than likely, roughly the same path is what was taken from Bethlehem to Jerusalem. And uh, and that is where they would go in order to have this 40 days in uh, at the temple. Uh, to be able to do that. Now, obviously, Bethlehem now looks very little like it did then. I think I showed you one picture last week. Here's another one. This is a painting that was done in 1839, just to show you how, uh, how long Jerusalem and Bethlehem looked so similar to what it did in Jesus' day. And here you can see the Temple Mount and the, the hill of Jerusalem as uh, those are heading in. And so, you've, you've got this painting done uh, back then when there was much less uh, around, very far fewer things uh, that were done then. Now, this is uh, a model of what the temple complex and inside the old city or the old city walls of Jerusalem, this is only a scale model. You can see people in the background. So if it was real, those would be really giant people. <laughs> and so uh, so you've got that here and you've got the temple, of course, that tall part uh, there at the at the very top the place where they would have gone is, of course, here, the temple courtyard. And then more than likely, from everything we know, as far as Joseph and Mary would have made it for what takes place is just the steps here on this door that you can see uh, would let you into the temple complex here in the very middle. That's this smaller door that's there in front of the larger one. Uh, More than likely, this is where uh, she would have been. And so Mary and Joseph come with the boy Jesus. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, and they fulfilled the law uh, just as they had been commanded to do. The book of Leviticus spells this out. They'd come for purification, and you notice something right off the bat uh, that they come and they get the offering that is for the lower income bracket. Now, now one thing I found out as I talked to people, everybody feels like, and, and a lot of us were, when we got married, we were in the low income bracket, weren't we? You know, some of you, when you look back and you say, boy, I don't know how we made it on this or that. I've talked to different people who, uh, you know, just some of the setups for the first couple years of marriage or whatever it is, we, you know, start simply, Mary and Joseph did as well. And more than likely, they were from families that weren't of real high, you know, economic standing. And so they give the offering here, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So when you sing that in the song, two turtle doves, uh, the ultimate hearkening back is to here uh, with Mary and Joseph. There's no partridge in a pear tree, as far as I can tell, uh, in the book of Luke, but there are two turtle doves that are mentioned here. And so they come to fulfill the law of the Lord, and we see this couple who comes before the priest, Simeon, uh, and as he's doing this, it's just a picture of two people who we would have never chosen, and the world would have never chosen, but the Lord chose, because God sees what's on the heart, doesn't He? God sees the inside uh, when everybody else might come up with separate credentials. So they meet this man named Simeon, and this is what we read about him in verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Simeon seems like a really wonderful man uh, to, to be honored in Scripture in this way that he was righteous and devout. That righteous in in this context means that he's blameless before the Lord. He is right with the Lord. He's, He's not sinless, but he's in right relationship with the Lord and seeking to honor him as best he can. And devout, you know what devout means? It means you're actually interested in the things of God and you are consistent in the things of God. A word pious that used to be more common, you may have heard as well. Both of those words meaning that you're actively involved in the things of God and you're looking to God to impact your life through your study of His Word, through prayer, through time and hearing truth being told. And so, Simeon is righteous, he is devout, and he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, this word is important for us to understand because usually when we use consolation, we're talking about that thing you got at the fair whenever you couldn't hit the target with the baseball, you know. You couldn't knock the milk jugs down so they give you the consolation prize. That, that's not the word. <laughs> that's not the way the word's being used. But the word consolation has within it our English word console. There's a way in which you are healing and fixing the wounds emotionally of someone, that you are making right what's been wrong, that you are repairing what's been broken, that the consolation of Israel is the bringing together and the healing that is needed. The Christmas song that uh, you might be familiar with, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, if you've ever sang that before, there's a, a verse in that, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation's hope of every longing heart, that the consolation of Israel is the bringing together and the healing of all that's broken. If you've ever been in a situation before where anybody's placed hope in you, sometimes you've been able to honor that hope, other times you might have let people down. The consolation of Israel is really an understanding of the fact that Jesus is finally going to be the one in whom there is no despair and there is no sense of, well, he let me down. He didn't quite do all that was hoping. we, we were placing our hope in some way, some, some means. If you've got an NFL team or a NCAA basketball team or whoever you're hoping in, more than likely, most of the time, they're going to let you down, aren't they? You place your hopes there, you're going to be disappointed a lot. Jesus came to be the consolation, one who would be uh, the ultimate fulfillment. So the first point is simply this, Lord, I want to be looking for your consolation. I want to be looking for your consolation, for you making right the things that are wrong, for you healing the things that are broken, for you uh, giving comfort and giving rest and and giving peace in those areas uh, that, that are difficult. This is a picture in the eighteen hundreds of those who were at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem offering prayer three times a day. many of you know the history that most of the temple was completely destroyed in 70 A.D., eighteen centuries before this picture was even taken. And only this single portion of the wall was left and so it became the place and still is the place where those who are waiting for God to resolve what was done to the nation of Israel so many years ago, continue to call out for deliverance from God. And it's a reminder of the expectancy but also the tremendous patience that it takes to to wait on the Lord. And for some of you in here tonight, you might be waiting on the Lord and you've been waiting for a while. And to think of the fact that when this Picture was taken, it might be a a drawing, a rendering of, of a time, but this was in the early 1800s, the American Civil War had not been fought, that we as a nation were maybe half the size that we are now in terms of geography, maybe not even that much. So many world events that you could go through and say, well, electricity had not been invented yet and there was no this and there was no that. And you think about the fact of all this time and yet now there's still prayers taking place at that wall continually for those who are crying out for the deliverance of the Lord. Simeon was someone who had been crying out for deliverance but instead of hoping in the deliverance that many of his people were hoping in, maybe the Romans will get cast out, maybe God will raise up a king that looks exactly like what we want, instead he was hoping with God's heart for the Messiah knowing that God's plans were better than His plans. Uh, This is one painting that I think I've got on your sheet that I like. Uh, Simeon nor baby Jesus were Caucasian you know the the way that some of these paintings look you know they they look as if they're from Eastern Europe or Western Europe but in reality more olive toned skin for those folks in the Middle East uh, the Jewish people as well so but uh, but I think there's a longing in his face uh, that I can't help but just be moved by Simeon had placed his hopes in what God's plan was for Israel and I think that's a beautiful thing for me And I think for us, there's something that's really wonderful when our heart starts to long for what God has planned. Instead of our own plans, our own hopes, our own dreams, we want to be able to own this or do this or experience this instead of, God, I wish that you would move. And Lord, I'm just praying and I'm hoping that we can see you do Uh, what only you would do. So, Simeon wasn't simply waiting in his room for this to happen. He was being faithful to the Lord and praying and hoping and and waiting. And uh, God had revealed to him through the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, from everything we can tell, he doesn't get to see Jesus grow up. More than likely, his life ends. He doesn't get to see the finished product. He's like Moses staring into the promised land from the mountain. He's not going to cross in there with his people, but he's finally gotten to see that God's deliverance has come. What a special event. Lord, I want to be looking for your consolation. The second thing, Lord, I want Jesus to be my life's ambition. I want Jesus to be my life's ambition. You know, the wonderful thing in our life is when we place our hope in Jesus, when we place our expectancy and our anticipation in Jesus, we won't be let down. Everything else fails and moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal and circumstances fade but when we place our hope in Jesus, there's a special strength that is there. There's a way in which that hope is fixed in areas that others, uh, other hopes are, are not. You know, Christmas is a time where small children and sometimes adults chase after and hope for things. I can remember taking a list of, a sheet of paper that I'd prepared for my father around Christmas time back in seventh grade, and I wanted the video game NBA Jam in the worst way. And I, I'd listed it out, I'd chart it out, I'd written out, and basically what I'd tried to tell my dad, if I ever get this game, I will never want anything else again. It'll it'll fulfill me for time out of mine. Now, I don't have to tell you what happened. Eventually, I wanted something else. You know, things bring emptiness. It's even been said by philosophers that pleasure brings meaninglessness, that if all we ever experience is just trying to serve our own hands and buy our own things and do our own, in, in, in the end, in some point, that's going to be meaningless to us apart from the work of Christ. But when we make Jesus our life's ambition, oh, what a difference. Pastor John Piper, some of you familiar with his name in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, makes an illustration about somebody who had gone to the Grand Canyon. I don't know if any of you, anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon, some of y'all? Okay, I've never been there myself. I did a funeral for a sweet lady last year uh, who was scared to death of heights. And when her family went to the Grand Canyon, she would not get out of the car. And when they came back and told her about it, but she didn't want to see it. But, um, but John Piper writes about the fact of, of somebody who goes to the Grand Canyon, and instead of being able to go out and see the canyon, they're taken into an office and they're shown an 8x10 photograph there in the room. And trying to gain through an 8x10 photograph what you can only experience in person is just something that's impossible. You know, our lives are kind of like settling for 8x10 photographs or chasing after The only great hope, the only great fulfillment that we've been given is in the Lord Jesus. All other hopes disappoint, but I want Jesus to be my life's ambition. Simeon continues to speak to the parents. He takes Jesus up in his arms, verse 28, and he blessed God. And this is what he said, "'Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation.'" that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. It seems from the nature of the text that Simeon wanted everything that he stated here. But the average Jewish person wouldn't be able to speak excitedly about the Messiah being a light of revelation to the Gentiles. I saw a, um, a Christmas musical one time where every time the Romans were brought up by those folks who were playing, uh, you know, Jewish characters at the time of Christ, they would all reach over and spit, you know, just because that was one of the customs of the day. That there were, you know, the Gentiles were called dogs uh, by the Jewish people at the time. And so there was this way in which there was this clear demarcation to say we're God's people and you are outside of that realm, that remnant, and so you're not a part of that. Now, that wasn't God's heart when you read the Old Testament. From Jonah going to Nineveh to the language in the Psalms and elsewhere as well, Israel was meant to be a light to all people, but not a gated community to all people. And so, for the Israelites of the time, the average person without God's heart would not have been able to say, a light of revelation, a revealing light a, a, a way in which what is hidden has been made known for those people who are not like us and have at times oppressed us and don't act like us and they don't, you know, they're, they're outside of the fold. No, a, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Something special had taken place in Simeon's heart for him to be able to rejoice in this and to actually echo the language of the Psalms in this. The the third thing that I have for you tonight, sort of in application of that, is what I think sometimes we just have to pray, and it's this. Lord, I want to want what you want. Lord, I want to want what you want. Sometimes we can't start with right action, can we? sometimes God's got to get a hold of our hearts. And if we're really honest, sometimes we don't want what God wants and we can't make ourselves want what God wants. And so where we have to start is praying, God, will you help me to want what you want? Start with my desire. Start with what's, my, what's going on in my own heart. And something special is going on in Simeon's heart. You've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I don't think that language is meant to say Israel showing glory to the rest of the world. That's saying that God's glory in person has been given in a special way to the nation of Israel. That Jesus' earthly ministry, and for all we can tell, His entire lifetime takes uh, place within the borders uh, of Israel. Jesus being the eternal Son of God who existed before He came and wrapped Himself in human flesh, but for His time of of earthly uh, ministry and life, from the best we can tell, that was within the bounds of Israel for the most part, or very close territories uh, beside. Lord, I want to want what You want. Then we come to verse 33, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. Now, it's it's interesting with this word how we choose to understand it, and I think even here it's important. Uh, Some of you who've been around a little while, you might remember an old Paul McCartney song. You ever heard a song called Baby, I'm amazed at the way you love me all the time. Y'all heard that one before? Now, uh, I'm not speaking for or against Paul McCartney, just trying to reference something we might most of us know in here. Baby, I'm amazed at the way you love me all the time. Now, when Paul wrote that song, if he wrote it for his wife, now imagine if his wife was supposed to take that as, baby, I'm surprised when you love me all the time. It might not ring very true to her, would it? I don't think he might get very much credit for that to say, baby, I'm surprised at the way you love me all the time. Sometimes when we see the word marveled or amazed, we would think of it, we would interpret it to say, well, they were surprised. That was something that they didn't know that they then heard. Well, perhaps to some extent, but I think the nature of the word here is not so much that they were surprised. But they were amazed, they were in awe, they they took in the greatness of what was being said by Simeon, realizing that not only they themselves had known the secret, but that God was revealing to other hearts as well what was taking place. They marveled, they worshipped, they they had a greater understanding of who God was based on uh, what had been done and what had been said by Simeon. This amazement... And then his his gaze Simeon's gaze turns to Mary. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. In, uh, in our day, uh, there's a lot of, well, I don't know that, there's a lot of banter that takes place back and forth from people in my generation and a little bit younger about the song, Mary, Did You Know? I really like that song. I don't know if any of y'all like that, Mary, Did You Know? Your baby boy was, you know, would, would, would heal a blind man. And, and I think it's a beautiful song, uh, but there's sort of this tongue-in-cheek way that people say, well, yeah, Mary knew, the angel told her this, or Simeon said this. You know, I think to some extent Mary did know, but there was a lot she didn't know. And there were ways she knew, some concepts of what would happen, but as Simeon says the words that he says to her, we're able to look at them through the lens of looking backwards through the cross. She was not able to hear those words in the same way, I don't believe, unless the Holy Spirit did that for her. I have to think that when she was standing at the cross, Simeon's words started hearkening back to her mind and heart. A sword will pierce your own soul too, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Number four, what I've got for you tonight, Lord, help me on the road that I'm to walk. Lord, help me on the road that I am to walk. For the first time in Luke's gospel, we encounter the cross. For the first time in Luke's gospel, we encounter the cross. And it's not in Jesus' words by the Sea of Galilee. It is not even by John the Baptist in chapter 3 as he's talking about the axe being laid uh, to the root of the trees and the preaching of what is to come, know for the first time that we get a glimpse of the cross in the gospel writing of Luke is here in Simeon's words. wasn't even in the words of the angel. But what Simeon gives uh, more clearly than anything that has come before is the pain that is going to come in, uh, in Jesus' ministry. I, I've got three words there for letter B. Division, opposition, Devastation. Division, opposition, devastation. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Some of our chapters that we've looked through so far, we've seen this picture given clearly in the Gospels. Luke is no exception to say that there are some who encountering Jesus are going to rise to salvation through the work of Christ in their hearts and the submission of themselves to the message of the Gospel. And there are those who are going to encounter Jesus and they're going to grow more wicked than they ever have been because they're not willing to submit and they begin to fight against what God is doing in a way that they never have just in their own complacency. That Jesus was destined to be a divider, not a divider because He enjoyed dividing people, but because our hearts are wicked and apart from our response to the Holy Spirit's work, this mix of what God is doing in His sovereignty and uh, and I believe also our our call, our obligation to believe, you know. We, in this room, even if we all were to go around the room, we probably would have somewhere on the pendulum between where God's perfect sovereignty and human obligation and choice, where we fall in that, you know, most people would call what I believe what, what's typically known as a modified Calvinist, that I see the sovereignty of God at work, and without the sovereignty of God, none of us would come to faith in Christ, and yet I see Jesus himself crying over Jerusalem, saying how I long to gather you together as a hen, gathers." others are chicks, yet you were not willing. heard one preacher say one time, I'm Arminian enough to preach my guts out and Calvinist enough to sleep at night. And I think I've found myself to be in that to some extent, that belief and trust in the sovereignty of God and yet to see the call of God in our life and our need to respond in the right way. The longer I live, the more I, I recognize that um, a dependence on God's action and God's deliverance and God's moving, even when our own, you know, movements aren't perfect and aren't aren't what's best. But Simeon speaks to Mary, and he begins to outline what's going to take place, that there'll be division, there'll be this dividing, there'll be opposition. Isn't it encouraging that if people didn't like Jesus, we shouldn't feel so bad if people don't like us? Now, I don't even just mean when we take a stand and we do the right things. I just mean in general. You know, I, I think, and I know in my own heart and life, I, it's hard for me when people don't like me. You know, it might be that way for you, that, but sooner or later, we just, <laughs> it's going to happen, isn't it? And so Jesus standing on God's word and being as, as vocal and as, as about the Lord's business, and he never took a vote to see what he should do. He always knew from his father what he should do. He wasn't worried about what people thought. He faced opposition. Sometimes it even came from within the disciples, uh, and he had to talk to several of them. So uh, tell, tell Peter, get behind me, Satan, right after he commended him and said, you know what? The words that you've said are, are right, and you wouldn't have known that unless the Father revealed them to you. Things went south real quick that there's going to be opposition, there's going to be division, there's going to be devastation. Can you imagine what those three days were like following Jesus' crucifixion, the hopelessness and the darkness that his disciples, that others experienced. Andy Stanley, um, who uh, I, I know is not necessarily endorsing everything he's ever done or said, but I have learned from him at different points. He gives this great illustration uh, to say that we know that the disciples didn't know about the resurrection or didn't fully understand it, even though Jesus had told them about it. Because when we read the gospel accounts, nobody's standing outside the tomb on Easter morning going, 10, 9, 8. They were just in the dark. They 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 just didn't know what to do. two men on the road to Emmaus who meet the Lord Jesus, not knowing it's Him, begin to speak to Him, and their world has just come crashing down. What must it have been like for Jesus' mother to stand there by the cross with John and these other ladies by her side? Can't even imagine what that day was like for her. My two oldest kids one time went running down a slip and slide in different directions towards one another. And... Conked heads real hard. It's the biggest goose egg I'd ever seen in my life. I remember what it was like holding my son and just thinking, just, just the distress. I've not had to walk through anything too tough. That's about as tough as it got. I just can't begin to imagine what it was like for Mary. And all these words coming back, the, the joy of what the angel had told her but what she didn't still fully understand. Simeon's words coming through, perhaps even more clear in that moment about a sword piercing her own soul and she must have felt it that day. The devastation, but that gave way to a dawn and a a newness. The last letter there, letter C, redemption. That the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. This lady, Anna, a prophetess who comes in uh, to the picture, her last words there in verse 38. She began to give thanks to God and speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The buying back the purchasing, repurchasing. Several weeks ago we were studying Hosea in our life groups, that book of the Bible that essentially has at its core The the message of the fact that God chose Hosea to be an illustration as he was called to take an adulterous wife and then to go back and to purchase her again when she uh, had had entered into slavery and, and, you know, circumstances that had gotten her, you know, right back down the wrong road again, that Hosea was to go and purchase her back, that that's a picture of what God was doing for humanity and the redemption of mankind that's offered through Christ, uh, we see that as well. And so, Simeon's last words speak about the thoughts from many hearts that would be revealed that Jesus was going to deal not only with the outward behavior of people, but the inner stance of their hearts, whether they were willing to submit to him, to surrender to him. And then, this lady Anna, who comes into the picture, daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years. She had lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow, until she was 84, or the language can actually mean, uh, though, they, though it's believed she was 84 years old, the language can actually also mean uh, 84 years from that time. So she could have been over 100 years old. Uh, we don't know for sure. We'll find out when we get to heaven. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. A long life, a long obedience in the same direction, looking towards the deliverance of the Lord Jesus. And then we get two verses which can seem strange to us when we take into account what's given to us in Matthew, verse 39. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their town, their own town of Nazareth. Now when you look at that, you say, wait a minute. What about this incident with the Magi and Herod wanting to kill Jesus? What about the flight to Egypt and getting away? What about all of that? How is that not mentioned? Well, God decided that Luke's focus wasn't going to be that. And he sums up all of that in one verse in verse 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, the law of the Lord can refer to more than simply, when we hear law, we think commandments. The term law of the Lord and word of the Lord can be pretty interchangeable uh, in the Old Testament. Psalm 1. Uh, that he who meditates on the law of the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water. That certainly doesn't just mean the commandments of God, but the word of God, the whole testimony of Scripture. And so Jesus, Joseph, Mary had fulfilled everything according to what was prophesied. You remember what Matthew said, that Jesus' flight to Egypt would ultimately fulfill the Scripture in Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son? that all of that was God's intention to show what was being done. And Luke summarizes all of that by simply stating in one verse, when they'd gotten done with everything that the Lord had planned, they returned to Nazareth. You know, the last point that I have for you tonight is that the favor, the grace of God, overshadows the difficult things in time. The favor or the grace of God overshadows the difficult things in time. While Luke is not called upon to speak on the flight to Egypt, what he does mention in verse 40 is that the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. More often than not, when we in our culture use the word grace, we sometimes use it interchangeably with the word mercy. And so we think of grace almost in light of mercy. You might remember the old Sunday school answer. Mercy is not getting what you deserve and grace is being given what you don't deserve. Some difference there. But grace, the word charis in, in the Hebrew, uh, or excuse me, in the Greek literally means favor. So the grace of God is not simply not being punished or somehow getting out of some punishment that we deserve, but it is favor, goodness, blessing, Uh, of God. and So all those things are being revealed in the Lord Jesus. He became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the favor, the pleasure, the grace of God was upon him. He certainly was not in need of grace in the way that we need grace to cover a multitude of sins in our heart and life. He was experiencing the favor of God that we'll see again in his baptism when God says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The favor of God shining through. You know, you might feel like this year you're in a flight to Egypt year, that there's been some chasing and some running and some difficulty and some, some strife and some pain, whatever it might be. We're sort of still limping out of COVID and all this other stuff, politically, socially, economically, you know, with your relationships, everything else. I just, I talk to a lot of people who are walking through some tough things. And when we're walking through those tough things, it's easy to have that be what is magnified in our lives, isn't it? And I'm just so encouraged that when Luke records what took place in Jesus' young life coming out of his time of purification, he chooses to focus on Jesus' growth, his strength, his wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The grace of God, the favor of God. May the grace of God the favor of God, overshadow the tough things that we might walk through. May we lean into what he has for us and remember. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for the hope that is in you, your goodness, your favor, your grace. So, Father, for anybody in here who, as we come to you, Father, we just say, Lord, I I want to want what you want. Lord, may we be people who look For your consolation in relationships, in pain and in strife and in difficulty, in lostness. Father, we want your consolation. You're fixing what is broken. Lord, for the areas where we need to have our hearts and lives focused on the Lord Jesus. Lord, would you help us with that? Would you help us to want what you want? Would you show us the way to that and soften our hearts? to step into what you have for us. And Lord, thank you that for Joseph, for Mary, for the Lord Jesus, in the midst of opposition and devastation, division, that all of that was for our redemption. So Lord, may we take hope in that. And may the favor, the goodness, the grace, the hope of who you are overshadow the things that are difficult this season. Father, we thank you, we look to you in Jesus' name, amen.